The opinions expressed on this podcast should be construed only as the opinions of the respective opiners, and some content may not be appropriate for little dragons. Discretion is advised. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work. Determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hiya, the only podcast that's broadcast for the badass with a brain and hopefully a sense of humor. Episode 59, recorded in the deciduously denuded December doldrums, starts now. Hi folks, I'm back. We're back. I bet you thought we were gone for good that time. Uh, no, no. We are the unsinkable rubber duck that is the high op podcast, so we've come to the surface again. And You know, I'm really glad to be here, folks. It, uh, I won't bore you with a long tale of it, but uh, November was a bad month to record. It was one thing after another. Phone messages not going through and texts not showing up for days until it was too late and people... Oh, you know, um, you know, we recorded once and it just didn't work. And it it finally occurred to me that the way we were doing it um, is kind of a logistical nightmare. We can't throw a party every time we record. That's just nonsense. That's crazy talk. So what if we've done it 60 times in a row now? Well, more or less, give or take. But just the way my schedule and the kid thing is going right now and with the holidays, it got really hard. So what we're doing is sliding back a little bit to an old format. I'm going to rely heavily on interviews here for a while. I think that's a good thing, though, and I don't think any of y'all should feel cheated about that. Um, and Because we've got a ton of interesting people to talk to and uh, that we already have. So let me go ahead and tell you what's on the show tonight. We've got Reed Kuhn. That's right. K-U-H-N for all you people out there who might think otherwise. Uh, Reed uh, is the fight scientist. Yeah, he's got a blog. He's got a book, Fightonomics. He does commentary for several networks and magazines and writes articles. And his gig is statistics. I know, I know. Stop getting so excited out there. Calm down for a second, people. But these are all fight statistics, and I think they will impress you. Some just, you know, it's Beautiful to watch science and math at work on one of our favorite pastimes here at the High Out Podcast. Lots of interesting information comes out. And uh, Reed's a really interesting character, too. I had the chance to meet him in person back at TAM 2013. Awesome guy. Really good guy. By the way, if y'all didn't catch it on the Facebook page, uh, both of those are available online now. The, uh, the seminar and the workshop, or the uh, presentation and the workshop from TAM 2013, so you can go check those out if you uh, are angry because you've missed your high eye content for uh, the last low month and a half. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm going to try to keep this fairly tight. You guys know I hate blithering in a microphone by myself. I love it when I have company. But uh, we're going to have that and we're going to have your martial brain segment where we look into tackling straw men in the martial arts. And in the world of fallacies. So that's going to be good. And then I'll just come back and say a few more words to you at the end. 
But uh, take hope, people. Happy solstice. Happy longest night in the history of the planet, because that's about when I'm dropping this episode. Um, And uh, just know that the sun will shine again tomorrow. And by this summer, it'll be the longest day in the history of the planet. And, uh, yeah, and I hope you all are really warming up for a nice uh, Christmas or whatever you're having out there. But let this be our little present to you. Enjoy this interview and enjoy your Marshall brain. And I will be back afterwards. Welcome back. Hi, Yahoos. I'd uh, like to welcome Reed Kuhn to the show. Reed is a Washington, D.C.-based strategy consultant and has been a scientific consultant for DARPA, among other things. Hold on. Let me adjust my tinfoil hat here. And most recent uh, and most relevant to us, he has been uh, analyzing pro-mixed martial arts since 2009. He has a popular blog and now a book, both called Fightnomics, and a list of uh, consultations and contributions to the sport of MMA, too numerous to mention here. Also, as a personal disclaimer, I met Reed in person at TAM in 2013, and uh, he managed to hit the uh, statistical jackpot there, um, and... uh, has a new baby girl that he's taking care of. <laughs> so uh, with all that out of the way uh, and uh, with uh, recognition of how hard it must be to pull it together at this early hour, welcome to the show, Reed. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Um, I'm going to start this off the same way we start off with, with pretty much every interview, but there's a little addendum to it. Uh, one, how did you get interested in martial arts? And uh, as a sidebar, how did you get interested in statistics? You know, which came first, the chicken or the lamppost there? <laughs> that's, that's a good question, actually. No one ever asked me that quite angle before. <laughs> so martial arts, I guess uh, I was a child of the 80s, really. I mean, that's when I kind of became aware, born in 77, but I I consider myself a child of the 80s. And that was martial arts fever in the United States. I mean, the Karate Kid came out and uh, the Ninja movies came out. And I was obsessed with that stuff when I was just, you know, five, six years old running around with nothing to do before there were video games and all that kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I, I signed up for Taekwondo classes as soon as I saw the Karate Kid and I loved it. Um, and 
the the problem is that just where we lived, there wasn't a school very close. We had to drive quite a distance, and so fortunately, my ability to go there was contingent on another one of my classmates and their ride. And then once uh, they lost interest, I was no longer able to go. So it didn't last too long, but there was always this itch. And so uh, throughout my life, beyond that, I would pick it up here and there uh, throughout the years, really. And right after college, I signed up for courses again, tried out, you know, competed in a tournament, um, tried out different techniques as well. Um, I would always sign up for that first free class in a lot of places just to see what Kempo was or see what jujitsu was and um, in Muay Thai. Uh, and most recently, it's been Muay Thai for me, actually. That's kind of what I've been enjoying. Um, I usually do a martial art up to the point where I injure myself, uh, which is kind of like <laughs> long enough to um, get a good taste of it, good feel of it. You start getting in the zone and then sure enough, boom, you know, you got a cracked arm or uh, a torn hammy. Um, so I've had plenty of those things, and uh, you know, physically, I'm I'm just not built to damage my body too much. So, <laughs> and now with the baby, I can't really get out. And I'm also in a new town now, so I'm no longer in DC. I went from having all these gyms right outside my doorstep, and now I'm in a new place without a car, and I can't. You know, the the nearest place is a jujitsu school that's quite a hike up in Berkeley. So, um, so it it's been a roundabout route, but it's also been enjoyable because I've dabbled here and there, and then. Yeah, the flip side of that, the, the question about statistics is um, that's been sort of uh, an intellectual – it's a similar thing to me intellectually in that I've dabbled here and there throughout my life. Um, my my academic training was not specifically focused on statistics. It was physics, undergrad, and then uh, systems engineering in my first grad school, and then I went and did an MBA as well. Um, so statistics was a component of each one of those courses, uh, each one of those focuses. And it, it was just always there. And it's always been useful and, and a tool that I had in my tool belt. Uh, and then professionally, I started doing management consulting. And I basically look at data and I make graphs and I try to figure out, answer a question that hasn't been answered before. And so um, when I put the two together and stumbled onto a large database of mixed martial arts data, I was a fan of the sport. I saw the opportunity to do something that no one had done before, and I just started blasting through it and cranking it out. And I found some friends, I found some fighters, and I said, hey, let me let me run some numbers on you. Let me run some numbers on, more importantly, on your opponent that you're facing next. <laughs> and that all of a sudden got people very interested, and it blew up from there. That was really the tipping point. Cool. And I want to get to some of that. Um, and But... But while we're talking about statistics specifically, you know, a lot of your work uh, in the statistics of mixed martial arts now is directed at a general readership. I mean, how do you manage to make the material so accessible? And from reading your blog, it really is. It's very easy to grasp. And just my experience with statistics, which I'm not any good at, you know, trying to convince a friend that, for instance, the Monty Hall problem, the solution is actually real, is, is so mind-bogglingly difficult. How, you know, what uh, in your background made it possible for you to convey this information in a way that uh, meatheads like me can grasp it? <laughs> it's funny. I've had, I've had that same conversation about the Monty Hall problem probably a <laughs> half dozen times. Yeah. No, really. No, let's, let's go through this again. Um, so I, that's... I, I guess I'm glad that you think that about the blog. Um, it is intentionally written uh, to address a single question, um, to look at a, a single historical trend through time in the sport, or to uh, isolate a certain variable and examine it and talk about why it is the way it is. 
Um, and sometimes it's just a lot of uh, looking at averages, looking at means, and setting a benchmark and saying, okay, in an average fight, you know, how often does a, a head strike actually land? And what are the differences in that? Does it depend on position and power and all these things? Uh, and understanding what that number really is, what it means, uh, historical context, um, maxes and mins. I mean, the math here isn't very complicated at all. And everything that's published publicly anyway is, you know, without the benefit of the more advanced analytics, you know, deep um, running models, uh, predictive models, or, you know, multivariate regressions. And uh, sometimes there's a logit that I, that I do, a logistic regression, just to check to make sure that something that I found is actually real. Um, but most of the time, I keep all of that away from what's publicly written about. And I think that's intentional because, one, most I don't want to have to explain um, more advanced concepts. It's a waste of my time and other people's time. They really just want to cut to the chase. They want to know what the answer is. Um, and two, uh, the more advanced stuff um, is more valuable in other ways. So if you if you learn something really valuable, you don't want to necessarily give it away for free. Um, but uh -huh. <laughs> the world of mixed martial arts is so wide open in terms of learning new things and just combat sports in general. You know, the idea of what is reach worth in a combat sport? What is being left-handed actually worth in a combat sport? Those were so fundamental that answering those questions just seemed like low-hanging fruit. Uh, and so, and then we can go beyond that, you know, into the actual tactics and uh, and ground game and, and clinch game and things like that. So there was just too much potential, really, to um, to try to go too deep on any one area. And let's just. Let's scratch the surface. Let's get the conversation going. Let's people get people more used to these variables and actually thinking about a combat sport in a quantitative way, which you know no one thought about that even just a few years ago. Yeah, and I for one am you know I enjoy the articles, but I'm glad to know that all of that is running in the background. You know, <laughs> it it adds weight and substance to what you're writing about. Um, and real quickly, and we're going to get back around to a bunch of this other stuff. Uh, but uh, I noticed in your bio of your work and this is a little off topic here but uh your research or your uh, contribution there for darpa involved extreme human performance and this is just something i've been thinking about recently because a lot of this has been um you know in the media on the web and stuff uh rhabdomyolosis you know it's been a topic of interest in both martial arts training and things like crossfit uh did you run across anything interesting about that in your work there uh, no, um, we were interested specifically in repair. So how do you, you take a special forces operator out of the field. He's been in there for two weeks and he now weighs 15, 20 pounds less than when he went in. He's sick, he's injured. Mm. How do you turn that asset around efficiently so that you don't have to leave him on the shelf for a month just to recover? Um, because you think of these guys as very valuable assets. Um, so the first, the first portion of that was focused on recovery, and the second one was uh, peak performance. So how do you also put them into the field in the absolute best condition they can be in such that after those two weeks and they are sick and hurt and tired, you can make sure that they can still sprint at top speed should they need to because that might be the difference between life and death. Um, it was very – it was macro – in that sense, we were uh, we were making the decision to fund different types of research that would all work towards that goal. It's kind of how DARPA works: is they just they come up with a big idea and then they wait for little people or more specific uh, research 
individuals to say, okay, I have a very focused bit of research that I believe will support that larger goal. Uh, and then DARPA gives the research funding out because they're the world's largest funding source for you know real scientific research. And so um, they they also kind of want people to be on the fringe and looking at crazy stuff. So right. we were looking at hibernation and human stasis and you know what if your uniform can inject you as soon as you're you lose a leg suddenly and you're going to bleed out what if your uniform injected you and you go into a coma and it and it gives you an extra 10 minutes you know the golden hour is a myth it's really like 15 minutes before people die of blood loss so um, how do you extend that window and what can you do can we use science and technology to you know improve you know survivability but also performance so that that's what we were doing in the, in the DARPA program. So, but it does get you thinking about what are the capabilities of the human body, mm-hmm. what are the limitations, and how do you tweak those variables? Because the human body is just a system like any other, and it can be tweaked and uh, it can also be damaged. And how do you figure all that out? Well, that's really interesting. And it, but it's a little left of what we're talking about here, and I also don't want to get you vaporized from orbit, so I won't uh, press you any further on that. But uh, that rolls us back around nicely into the work you are doing now. Um, I've picked out a couple of topics uh, that have appeared recently on your blog that I want to kind of dig into, but uh, maybe it's just a, a mini one. At first, uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, a, a minute ago was, uh, you know. The Southpaw advantage. Is it real? Is it not? Could you speak a little bit to that and what your research has shown? Yeah, that's that's one of the most fundamental things you hear about in boxing. And and most of a, a lot of what we have in mixed martial arts is inherited from boxing, at least in terms of the professional aspect. You know, we MMA basically cloned the boxing sequence. You know, you have a a guy walks out, they walk into a ring, they announce them, you know, there's all this, there's ring card people, there's whatever. Um, there, there's a lot of similarities. And it is a direct one-on-one interactive combat sport. Right. Uh, mixed martial arts just takes it a little bit further and allows more things to go on. So when you look at boxing, um, they show the tail of the tape and they show you know age, reach, uh, but they usually do talk about stance. And so southpaws in boxing have, there's been this, long-standing tradition that southpaws are hard to deal with. They have this inherent advantage. And so I wanted to look at that and actually figure it out. And so when I when I looked for published research on this subject, I didn't find a whole lot. Um, there was a study done on a Turkish boxing group that basically found that there was an overrepresentation of left-handers in, in this large uh, league or promotion in Turkey of professional boxers. And they found that the win-loss record of the left-handers was higher than that of the right-handers. Hmm. Okay, so great. So there's, you know, the baseline rate of left-handed individuals, at least for males, is about 12%. Um, it's probably slightly less for females. And that has its own, you know, evolutionary tale to tell that is interesting. Uh, but males are about 12%. And that number, apparently, according to actually somewhat more recent research, is consistent going back as far as 50,000 years. So if you examine the bones of early hominids, they, you know, you can actually tell what hand dominant they were based on just the bones and the structure and injuries and things like and, that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's very interesting that that ratio has has not changed. So it clearly it goes way back, but if you go really far back and you look at other uh, apes, other members of the ape family, they don't really show a lot of hand dominance, uh, at least until you force them to only walk on two feet. 
and then they start to pick a side. But the way they pick a side, it seems to be more even, like 50-50, rather than you know 80-20 or 90-10, the way humans do. So from an evolutionary standpoint, it's actually really interesting as to why do we have 90% of people walking around right-handed and only 10% left-handed to begin with. Yeah. Why isn't it 50-50 and, or why isn't it 100-0? Um, and so we think that it had to do with brain development uh, and specialization. And then there was either a coin flip or there may have been some small push that that pushed us one way or the other. Uh, and so, you know, there's some asymmetry involved. So understanding that was kind of fun to look into. And then what happens when two people face off in a direct competition and one of them happens to be left-handed? So the effect has been known recently as the fighting hypothesis. Um, so why do we still have left-handers has been dubbed the fighting hypothesis by two French researchers that suggested um, the reason that we still have left-handers hanging around instead of just all being one way, because it would make sense. You know, you can make tools one way instead of having to make a bunch of left-handed tools. You can shake hands and communicate with I your think, hands I, the I, same I, way. I think I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, so why would you have a group of people that are different? Yeah. Um, and so the fighting hypothesis says that – when you look at cultures that have more violence, not less, they tend to have more left-handed individuals. And the theory is is that le being left-handed conferred a slight advantage in combat. And so um, this group of individuals were selected through uh, very turbulent times. Uh, now, is that true today? Can we, you know, you, if you look at tennis or baseball, baseball what yeah. you see is an over-representation of left-handed individuals that are succeeding in at least when it comes to baseball, at least in as at the pitching position, uh, definitely, and then in tennis as well. Um, so basically, any one-on-one -on -one competition where repetition is extremely important, um, speed of reaction time is very very important. Uh, recognizing the patterns of your opponent is critical to what you do and what your response is. So all of a sudden, you're used to seeing ninety percent of your training partners do one thing. And then you get in a competition, this guy does, he's coming from a different angle. That heartbeat, that millisecond, that whatever of delay or just awkwardness involved just slows you down a little bit more and you don't do as well. And so there is an inherent underlying advantage. So trying to quantify that, um, there's lots of different ways to think about it. But ultimately, I was just interested in what's the win-loss difference? You know, are we talking, is it... You know, if, if everybody goes in and has an expected win rate of 50% in the long run, right. are we talking 51-49? Are we talking 90-10? You know, is it a huge advantage? Is it a small one? And it came out to be, it's it's small, but it's significant. Um, it was more, I think the number we came out with was like 55 to 45 or 56% win rate for lefties when they face a right-handed individual. But what was more interesting is that the, the name is the Southpaw Advantage. But that's not what the hypothesis is suggesting. The fighting hypothesis is basically saying it's it's called an infrequency-dependent selection. So because being left-handed is infrequent, other people don't recognize you as well in what you're doing, and therefore they're at a disadvantage. So it's actually a contra-southpaw disadvantage. <laughs> it's the northpaw disadvantage. <laughs> the north, yeah, exactly, the northpaw. Yeah, so, I mean, even the name comes from early baseball when they used to build stadiums facing a certain direction. So a southpaw was a pitcher who's, whose body faced south right. instead of north. Um, so 
yeah, it, it was interesting to find that. And so we were able to actually take performance data for the first time, which no one had really looked at in-fight performance data, and look at variables like striking accuracy and striking defense and what percentage of your strikes are jabs versus power strikes. Uh, what is the volume? Uh, and even then takedown percentage you know, in wrestling. like Are left-handers actually taking people down a little bit more successfully because they are snatching from a different angle? You know, They're grabbing the leg with their left arm maybe. Um, and and they're going after maybe a different leg. So there were differences. And what we saw is that lo and behold, the left-handed guys, they weren't performing better. It's just that when other people face them, they performed worse. And this was true, not just for the population at large, it was true for left-handed guys as well. So basically the Southpaw advantage or the contra Southpaw disadvantage is so consistent that it works against other Southpaws. Um, which is what you would expect because yeah. they're not used to necessarily facing left-handers either. They just are the way they are. They fight the way they fight. Uh, but when they get in there in the ring with a left-hander, they're also a little bit off because it's different than what they're used to. Now, I literally yesterday just stumbled on a new bit of research that was published this summer. And um, they are examining the fighting hypothesis. They did use uh, ultimate fighting championship data, reached out to the author, uh, haven't heard back, but they're suggesting that the Southpaw advantage is real up to a certain point, and then at the highest levels of competition, it may get competed away, which we should expect, actually, the last few years, ever since I've drawn more attention to this, I think you talk to trainers, you talk to fighters that compete professionally, and they know what their opponent is doing. You know, This is the YouTube age. They've watched video on this guy, slow motion, over and over. Right. Um, they, they specifically hire training partners to simulate their opponent, um, both in size and style. So they actually will find someone who has a similar reach, similar stance, and they will pay that guy to come into their camp and face him each day so that they're used to the angle. So that is a trend that I would expect. So we should expect at the highest levels that this will get competed away. Um, and then at the lower levels where you're facing someone that you don't have video on or you're just an amateur fighter. Or you and don't you have get, the resources to bring in someone to match exactly. that guy to train with. Yeah. 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 You just go to camp and then all of a sudden you have a fight in two weeks and you, know, <laughs> you show up and, and, and it gets switched last minute, which happens at the regional scene all the time. Um, so, it, yeah, this is – and it's, it's interesting to see how the system develops. It's interesting to look back in time at where this came from, why it is the way it is, uh, and then, you know – extrapolate forward and put it in a once you put something in a very highly competitive environment like professional combat sports and that is very very competitive mm -hmm. all of a sudden things happen and it's interesting to see how the system changes over time it's it's fascinating to me i think combat sports offers a very unique breeding ground for these types of experiments oh i agree and you know just uh, looking at the historical side of it, just the fact that it, you know left-handedness has a correlation or a connection to violence flies in the face of our normal, you know, everyday conception of it now. Where oh, the lefties are artistic and you know, <laughs> and gentle souls and so forth. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, and also this brings to mind I trained a traditional martial art at one point uh, called hung foot that made you lead every form, everything off with a left-handed technique, just because I think they were trying to game that advantage. Um, whether it worked or not, you know, who knows? <laughs> um, all right. Well, that is really cool. Let's, let's move on to, uh, an article that you recently, uh, 
posted, it's actually a two-part article about the effects of cage size in mixed martial arts. And the second part's so fresh, I think it, am I correct, it posted today? Uh, yeah, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to get to the second part yet, but um, I did read the first part. Go ahead and explain that because uh, that it's some really cool stuff you found there. Well, it, it's interesting because imagine if baseball – well, baseball fields are not all the same actually in terms of size. Right. Um, but imagine if a football field from place to place was a different size or a hockey rink was a different size, it would affect the outcome of games and also the way that people choose to play them. One would expect. At least in, at the highest level. And so what's been going on in mixed martial arts is that the ultimate fighting championship is the top <clears throat> of the food chain – and they have been using two different cage sizes, which most people don't realize uh, because it's pretty rare that they use the quote-unquote small cage. Um, this is, you know, we're talking about the octagon, as they call it in, in the UFC. It's an octagon. In other promotions, sometimes it's a circle or a hexagon. But it's, a, it's always a cage, uh, at least in North America, actually. In, in Japan, they used a boxing ring, right. uh, which had some different dynamics to it. But here we have the UFC, and the UFC is now, I think... Um, so much so the leader in the sport that <laughs> according, uh, this week they've been hit with a monopoly antitrust lawsuit um, <clears throat> about controlling the sport too much. So uh, it's interesting. But so we have this we have this experiment to do in the UFC that where they've been using two different cage sizes. And from the get go, really, I was suggesting that well, how does that change things? I mean, that must change things. That must change something. Um, if people don't have enough as much room to roam, what would it do? Would it cause more um, more interaction with with tighter confines? Does that mean there's going to be more time spent up against the fence? Uh, what happens? And so the first thing we do in MMA is look at how do, how do the fights end? Because that's the most readily available data uh, is what the finish method is. Did it go to a decision? Was there a submission? Or was it an end via strikes like a TKO or a knockout? Right. And lo and behold, I saw that even after correcting for weight class, because there are differences in divisions in terms of how many fights they finish, there is a significant bump in the finish rate if you are only looking at fights that happen in a small cage rather than a large cage. And so that could mean a lot of things. Um, first of all, from a promotion standpoint, they like highlight real finishes. They they don't like it going to the cards. They don't like people booing a decision. Yeah. Um, they, they certainly don't like a fight that just stalls and goes on too long. Uh, so if they shrink the size of the cage, they're not going to see as much of that. They're going to see more finishes. But what does it mean for the actual fighters? And trying to get to the bottom of why that effect is occurring um, was a, a, a trick. I mean, I, I was expecting to find something very concrete in terms of, well, they're closer together and therefore they simply interact more. And if you throw more ammo you're going to have more hits. right? And that originally was the theory. That was the hypothesis going in, and we did not find evidence for that. What we did find is that, for some reason, knockdowns are occurring at an abnormally high rate, uh, and a, as well as submission attempts are happening at a very high rate. Other supporting metrics were not boosted. It's not that guys were throwing more volume or uh, just attempting more power head strikes or their defense was poor. It was just that when they landed, people were falling down more. So they weren't so, doing it more, but the success, the success rate went up. Exactly. Okay. So it's it's like 
you're you're shooting at a target. Uh, you're not throwing more ammo, and you're not landing more on target. It's just that when they do land, the target falls over. Right. <laughs> so deciphering that was awkward, and I, I couldn't really figure it out. But there was a quote from a friend of mine who is a is a fighter, and he's also a former uh, special forces operator. His name is Tim Kennedy. Uh, lives in Texas. He's you know literally an American hero. This guy came back from multiple tours. Um, and he, he made a comment that he was in a smaller cage for one of his fights, and he had a torn hamstring. And he was having to pursue his opponent, and that was very difficult for him to walk forward and throw power, good power strikes because he was just he was on one leg basically. Right. But he was in a small cage, and he was able to land a leaping left hook that knocked out Rafael Natal uh, at a UFC event fight for the troops, and it was spectacular. But he said afterwards, he's like, I'm not sure I would have caught that guy if I was in a large cage. He says it's easier to cut people off when you're in the smaller cage, and it it really does help. Other guys, you say, oh, I'm fighting in this tiny cage. I don't have room to set up my strikes. I like to keep a wide base, and I like to you know take steps back and walk in. I don't like it. Well, regardless of whether a guy likes it or not, the, the fact is cutting people off was the key to this. And so some right. strikes will hurt a guy. And he will circle. And it's something you see in UFC all the time. Right, buy a little time to get his bearings back. <clears throat> right. It and so, you know, it only takes a few seconds to clear your head sometimes if it's one of those borderline punches or kicks that, quote unquote, rocked or wobbled. Rattled. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, these, are, these are bad things that happen in your brain. But the, the fact is that a guy gets hurt and instinctively he knows he needs to you know, circle and stall. Sometimes they'll just, you know, shoot for a takedown and try to stall things. Sometimes they're saved by the bell. But the fact is, in the small cage, when a guy gets hurt, he has much less room to run. And it just makes them easier to catch up with and finish. And so I think that that's ultimately what's causing this. We've looked at, again, we've looked at individual statistics and striking, and we don't see a big change. We just see people falling down a lot more. And we don't see a change in matchmaking. Some people suggested, well, these small cage events are lower profile, and therefore there's going to be less experienced fighters, and there's going to be more mismatches. Right. So we looked at that too. We isolated the position of of the fighters in the card. We looked at how high they are on the fight card if they're the main event or the lowest one, and we we found that actually the the highest ranked fights, the most build fights, the main events, the co-main events, saw the biggest effect in terms of a, a leap in finish rate. We also found that there was no change in age, uh, which is another factor that can lead to more knockdowns. If you're much older, you've taken more damage, you're easier to knock down. Uh, and it's not matchmaking. So the the betting odds were nearly identical for the two groups in terms of what the market thought, in terms of how fairly they were they were matched. So it was fun because we were able to look at a single experiment from a lot of different angles and actually test a lot of theories. And they were they were good ideas. Okay. The small cage events, maybe it's a different pool of fighters, or maybe they're less skilled, or maybe they're more poorly matched, and that's why this is occurring. And we were able to look at each of those in isolation and explore it with the data and see if we could get to an answer. And so while we didn't have like a smoking gun, we do have a pretty good theory, and we were able to eliminate a lot of more obvious ones. So that's the fun of this experiment. Yeah, the the power of statistics. <laughs> Because otherwise, you're just kind of guessing and picking your, you know, your pet theory on why something like this occurs. Exactly. And everybody has ideas 
um, and the internet message boards are full of them. Yeah. Uh, so I think this one is recent enough that I haven't seen too much uh, predictions of what people think and uh, if they agree with the analysis. But we'll see. You know, uh, that's why I I put something like this out there and I wait for feedback and. And sure enough, it'll eventually come, um, and we'll see what people think. Uh, this is so fresh, I think people haven't really had time to respond, although the fighters themselves, I think, would agree. And certainly, it, this was a cool collaboration in the sense that I got the idea from one of the fighters themselves, and it ended up being the working the hypothesis that beat the others. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Nice. And, you know, on a just quickly on sort of a related question to something you mentioned while we were discussing this, uh, is the finish rate dropping in MMA in general? It has been for a long time and it seems to have stabilized. Um, so the finish rate is dependent on weight class, uh, I would say, above and beyond any other factor. So the big heavyweights, obviously, they sling a lot, a lot of power and leather. They fall down a lot. They finish the vast majority of their fights. Yeah, I, know, I noticed in some of the small cage data when I was looking at that article, it looked like in your sample set that for the small cage, the heavyweight finish rate was 100%. Yeah, well, although based on very, very small sample size because right. they normally right. avoid – they had a rule where they wouldn't use a small cage if there were heavyweights on the card, and they recently broke that rule. Um, so that that – those, that group was actually excluded from the performance analysis. So okay. we focused on the smaller weight classes. So originally, the UFC didn't even have anybody competing below the weight of 155 pounds, the men's lightweight division. They now go all the way down. They've got 145, the featherweights, 135, the bantamweights, 125, the flyweights. They brought in the women's bantamweight division, 135, the Ronda Rousey division. Right. And now they've even got, as of... Two weeks ago, they've got the women's strawweight division, 115 pounds. Um, so they have, you know, the average weight of a UFC fighter has gone down drastically over time. And what we've seen is that so has the finish rate. But the finish rate is also dependent on other things. So in 1993, when they had the first UFC and there were quote unquote no rules, there were actually some, but they didn't want to advertise that. Um, two men enter, one man leave, you know, kind of thing. It was sure. this brutal circus that was going on. And they Every somewhat fight. damaged their brand early on with that sort of ultraviolet <laughs> sort of promotion. Well, yeah, and they were, I think, wildly successful because it really turned a lot of heads so much so that yeah. they got banned. And <laughs> now, in 2001, when current ownership came in and bought out the old guys <clears throat> and revamped the promotion, it changed a lot. So a lot more rules, weight classes were instilled. Um, so there was a stabilization. And in any highly competitive environment, first of all, this 1993 was a time where – Hoist Gracie could fight any man on the planet probably and win. And that was the whole point of the experiment to begin with because the Gracie family were financial backers of the UFC at that time. Right. They said our brand of fighting is superior to all others and we'll prove it in a cage. So bring in a boxer, bring in a sumo wrestler, a catch fight wrestler, whoever, and we'll beat the guy. And that's what happened. Now, fast forward 10 years. Uh, or let's see, 2005, I think, when Hoist Gracie made his return to the UFC, fought Matt Hughes. Um, here's this guy, this Iowa wrestler, mm -hmm. and he beat Hoist Gracie so severely, it was it was sad to watch. Um, granted, Gracie a bit older, past his prime physically, but you know, all of a sudden, technique was not the only thing. This had gotten to a point where everybody had technique. Yeah. So now, strength, endurance, 
you know, the normal things that are athletically important all of a sudden became important because this was a highly competitive environment. So watching the evolution of MMA fights over time is pretty interesting because you can look at one graph, finish rates over time from 1993 to now, that trend tells a story in and of itself because it used to be 100%. All fights were finished. Then they brought in judges. Then they brought in rules. All of a sudden there were draws. Um, and then they had judges that gave scores. And so now there were, there were decisions, but there was still a winner and that changed a bunch of things. And then weight classes came in and, and just people caught up with the fact that, wow, I can't walk into a cage without knowing submission defense because some guy's going to break my arm or choke me out. And that's, you know, (laughs) if, if you've been training striking your whole life, that's a pretty sobering thing to have to realize the hard way. Absolutely. Well, all right, that that explains that for me. Um, uh, it, let's go ahead and move along to a, another recent article that you put out. Um, and this one is uh, quite sobering, uh, especially for older cats like me. It concerns the youth advantage. Um, it, uh, tell us about the youth advantage. I think we all instinctively know that there's an advantage there, but it's not just athleticism. What's going on there? Yeah, the youth advantage was the one that I didn't, know what the name for was. So I had to come up with one myself and that's the youth advantage. So, um, there's the Southpaw advantage, which we talked about. There's the reach advantage in boxing, which mm-hmm. should be obvious, you know, in an arm striking contest, obviously having longer arms helps. Um, but when I ran a very simple analysis on the available variables of two fighters facing each other, who tends to win? Yeah. You know, there was a little bit of boost on the, on the left-handed guys. There was a little bit of boost on, the like guy with the longer arms and that would increase if he had a huge reach advantage versus a small one. But age ended up being arguably the most important number on the traditional tail of the tape for boxing or MMA. And so that was a, a shocker. So diving much deeper into that found that, um, yeah, younger guys tend to win more often over the older guys. And that, that advantage gets more pronounced, the bigger the differential is. So, uh, once you get to, I think it's like 10 years age difference, if you have a 25-year-old facing a 35-year-old, the younger guy is going to win probably two out of three times, maybe even three out of four times. Um, and this is, again, this is in an efficient competitive environment like the UFC where everybody's really good, everybody's fit, they all know the different disciplines. Um, if you take you know two people in a street alley or uh, at a carnival – um, I would I would suggest that factors like that become much less important, and it it's much more about technique and what you know. So whoever knows more is probably going to win when athleticism isn't going to be the the corrective factor. But once you get to the highest level and everybody knows the technique, those little things that you can't change become right. more important. And so the trick to the youth advantage was well, what was causing it? Are these guys are younger guys just faster? Are they stronger? And I actually had to pull out, you know, an exercise physiology textbook to look at what happens. You know, the first thing, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, testosterone these days. Yeah. So people said, oh, well, the older guys have lower testosterone. They're not going to be as strong. So I looked into that. Okay, well, you know, once you hit 40, there's going to be a slow decline. But it didn't, it didn't account for what we were seeing. And we were seeing effects before that. Um, and it, it shouldn't be so sharp that drop off because the decline of testosterone is, is far more gradual than I think the commercials on TV will have you believe. <laughs> right. um, 
And so that really – that wasn't really the answer. And so looked into it more and I found that, okay, older fighters aren't winning any differently. They're simply losing differently. They're getting knocked out a lot more often. Um, they're actually getting submitted less. So there's a benefit to experience. Is the older guys are more experienced than the younger guys. Expending um, less energy and having more tricks up their sleeve and grappling. Yeah, and they're harder to catch. They're harder to actually submit. Um, you know, and that's the benefit of experience. Because when it comes to submission art, that truly is a expertise type thing. It's it's that one is more about technique and expertise than it is about athleticism. And that was the, again the point of Hoist Gracie. Right. So if guys are getting knocked out more, what is it about that? <clears throat> and once again, this was a situation where we had multiple hypotheses to to maybe crack this nut, and we were able to isolate each one of them and look at them and say, okay, well, if a guy's getting knocked down more, something's happening. He's either getting hit more often, um, maybe his defense is lagging, so he's he's allowing himself to get hit more often. Maybe the difference in rate of striking uh, is bigger, so he's not able to keep up with his younger peer, and the other guy's just out voluming, uh, you know, just throwing more volume at him, um, or something else. And and we found that those first two actually were not different. So the skill of the older guy had not changed. What changed is that when he got hit, this is kind of like in the small cage. When he got hit, he was more likely to fall down. So this is called the knockdown rate. <clears throat> so if the knockdown rate suddenly changes for the older fighter, what it is about that? And so that's where the whole brain health thing came in. Um, and so it's very obvious that each time you have a concussion, uh, the threshold for future symptoms drops. Uh, your likelihood of being knocked out or experiencing a concussion increases with each, with each subsequent event. Uh, also, just a lifetime of cumulative trauma, micro, you know, uh, small concussive events, um, all of these things add up. You know, the brain is, it's still plastic. You know, it's a myth that you don't grow new brain cells your whole life. Right. Um, you do, and you're also still plastic. You can reroute stuff, but it, it is, it is still a fragile thing and damaging it is cumulative. Yeah. So, even physiological things like the brain doesn't quite fill the skull up as well as you age. And you know, that can lead to more true. movement with a strike. True, true. So there is some atrophy over time. The the space between the skull and the brain increases, and so yeah, you're right. When you when you move your head, there's a little bit more wobble, right. um, and so that bounce, <clears throat> which happens when you get hit in the head, there's just there's more room for it to bounce around, and each bounce, whether it's the initial bounce or the bounce back, this is coup contra coup right. type bouncing of the brain. Each one of those does something bad. Um, so. That was a sobering thing, but you know, it, people say, "Well, we should ban the sport." You know, the same could be argued for football and for many other things. We found that there maybe is also damage to people um, heading soccer balls. Yeah. <clears throat> so that has actually, you know, they've done research into this and they said, "Yeah, there is a little bit of damage there." Should we stop playing soccer? Should we put helmets on them? You know, I, I don't, I don't claim to want to set legislation. I just want to put the facts out there and let people evaluate them because we as humans are risk-taking individuals. We are inherently competitive. We should be allowed to take risks even with our own health. Yeah. Uh, but we should also be knowledgeable about those risks and quantify them properly. So whereas a guy says, I'm going to go in the ring and maybe I'll get knocked out a few times, but don't worry, I'll retire. I'll be fine. Well, you know, 
as we've seen with many boxing legends, um, dementia pugilistica is the name given to <laughs> exactly <laughs> this early onset of dementia due to head strikes. And we will see that with football players. And yeah. know, the research is still being done on that. But it's sobering, but it's also it's also good to just allow people to understand what's going on. And I am certainly not advocating banning the sport or anything. I just want people to know what they're getting into and let them compete responsibly. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, no one gets out alive anyway. And I think you've hit on the, the nub of it there, which is provide the best information possible to people so they can make their own choice. As long as no one's being forced into a gladiatorial arena, then, you know, it's their life. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think to take away the competitive spirit from people is to, I mean, it's one of the things that makes us human. Right. It would we diminish like us somehow. Yeah. We will, we will, we will make a game out of anything. You know, we've made ridiculous games out of ping pong balls and, you know, you put two people with enough time and they'll come up with a game for something because we like to do it. We like to compete and, uh, it, it exercises our brain also. So give people at least the knowledge to do so responsibly and understand what they're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that leads me to a, to a question, which is, uh, uh, you know, with all the work you do here, uh, we love to compete. We also love to gamble. It's wired into human nature. Do you have odds makers from Vegas beating your door down for information? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I got tied up with um, one of the leading odds makers for MMA, and I'm now a weekly guest on their podcast. Uh, and I do some predictions and I analyze the betting lines. And, and most importantly, I would point out that uh, betting lines are historically accurate. And you have to remember that just like the roulette wheel, uh, you can't just bet black or red because every now and then it's green. Right. And that that little that occurrence is enough that if you place two bets down on black or red and just keep winning one and keep playing long enough, um, your break even, your break even, your break even, and then you're bust. Right. <laughs> so that's how casino, casinos make a living. And every game is built the same way. There is a margin that is built in for the house so that uh, as long as you keep playing in the long run, they will make money. And so gambling odds are the same in sports. You know, you, you can't play both sides. You can't pick two football teams to win that are playing each other because the price to play has a little margin built into it. Right. And what you receive back won't quite equal what you lost. Uh, so that's how sports gambling works. And I will, you know, I'm not out there to start encouraging people to, to start gambling. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly a risk averse <laughs> individual myself. Um, and MMA is no different. So you can't really bet both corners. Um, there's right. a price involved, there's a margin involved, or there might be a draw, in which case everybody loses. Yeah. Um, so they have been accurate. And that was really interesting because it was an example of the wisdom of crowds. You look at a lot of a lot of fighters um, aren't really well known to the fans, and yet assessment of their odds, their probability of winning, has been accurate over time. And so, um, I, a lot of these, the odd, you know, certainly people weren't taking into effect what the reach differential was and what the age of each fighter was, and who's left-handed, who's not, and then also, you know, their performance capabilities. Um, they were just sort of assessing the fighter overall, and you know, and they they were able to ballpark it pretty well. So over time, if you were to kind of throw your your money down on certain types of fighters, you probably wouldn't be winning in the long run. Um, I would argue that analytics uh, can be used to outperform the market. Uh, it's a small margin, but you know, it's worth it. 
but that's also the lesson that's a larger lesson that means you know applying the scientific method to any complex system is going to allow you to understand it better than without it and that's the benefit of analytics and so um, I do dabble in that arena and it is interesting from an intellectual standpoint um, you can't really well, it's difficult to make a living off of gambling. Um, it can be done, uh, but <laughs> sure. you, know, you move to Vegas and start throwing down large volumes just to make that small margin. You know, yeah. it's it's not really appealing to me, but um, it sure can be done. It's for the people who enjoy it, and I don't think you have to worry about leading people who want to gamble into gambling by doing your research. And you know, um, also, uh, hallelujah for the science. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it makes everything yeah. a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, it just it keeps coming through. It's yeah. amazing how consistent that is, that lesson, that if you just start looking and analyzing and running experiments, you will learn something that you didn't believe before or something totally new that you just didn't know. Yeah, as the t-shirt says, it works, bitches. <laughs> exactly. Um, which leads me, and I know we're running up towards the end of our time here, but that leads me uh, to another question. Can we, can we apply that sort of science to the traditional martial arts? I mean, is there any way to do that? Or are we just not generating enough data points to get anything, any significant information back from, you know, what, which is the more effective style, which is the more effective type of kick, that sort of thing in, in the traditional world, something that's not set up as a ring based sport. Um, yes, I do believe that there's potential. Um, I don't know that the data exists that would be necessary to analyze it. <clears throat> but I would, again, assert that if you analyze anything, even a foot race, if you do it rigorously and scientifically, you will learn something. Um, you might learn that a certain running style is more efficient and therefore uh, propels people forward better. Or you might find that people with longer legs have an advantage over shorter legs. Um, so when it comes to traditional martial arts, uh, it just begins with data collection. Um, Certainly the people that are competitive are going to have the most vested interest to figure this out. And you, you do need to have some sort of objective variable to test outcomes. Right. Um, so again, in a foot race, it's, it's all about speed or you know, total completion time. In martial arts, it's probably winning a match. Um, and so that might be scores. It might be how many points you can score. Or it might be the total outcome of the match, you know, your points relative to your opponent, because um, certain kicks might reward be rewarded differently. And that may be a human perception thing. You might believe that one kick does more to your opponent or is more impressive or more damaging. But the way it's perceived by judges, you may find by looking at historical fights, matchups, and analyzing who actually won, you might realize that judges are rewarding something you didn't think that they were looking at. They might be skewed or biased towards a certain technique. Uh, and, and a lesson from MMA is that judges are notoriously bad at what they do. Um, there is a huge level of disagreement among three trained professional judges watching the exact same two people fight in a cage for the same 15 minutes. They will disagree uh, two-thirds of the time almost on every single, you know, each round, if you take all three rounds, there was at least one round in there where there was disagreement to some extent. Yeah, it's the problem with eyewitnesses, period. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody's looking at something different um, and they're weighting their own perception of things differently. And unless, you know, unless this, I've been trying to call for the, the athletic commissions to do a better job of actually having an increased visibility and saying when there's disagreement between judges in a famous fight, which happened just recently, 
talk about it. You know, why did one judge call it this way and the other judge called it the other way? Talk about what they were looking at. Now, instinctively, I know from the data, I, I kind of know what happened. You know, one guy didn't value leg kicks. The other guy did. And so the fighter that threw a bunch of leg kicks, but his opponent threw a few, far less, but perhaps more impressive head kicks, um, two judges saw it different ways. Uh, maybe it's the one judge has trained some Muay Thai and he's eaten a bunch of leg kicks and he knows how much those things hurt. Maybe he was a little bit more impressed with the fighter that was throwing the leg kicks. Right. Whereas the other guy is maybe hasn't trained striking and he's watching it you know, aesthetically. He sees those leg kicks. They don't look like much. He sees the other guy wind up, throw a giant head kick, whiffs, but it was still impressive. Right. Uh, and he does it a few times and maybe that's more valuable. So in terms of bringing this back to traditional martial arts, I mean, you can, you can learn from analysis of anything. The key is to try to break it down and quantify it and look at outcomes and try to have some objective variable. Uh, and so any, any, any sport, any technique or <clears throat> any style of fighting can be broken in, down into components. You know, is it, you know, how many strikes? Well, okay, now what type of strikes were occurring? If it's a grappling art, you know, how many throws or takedown attempts occurred? How much time was spent in a position of control? Uh, and that's what the fight metric system did. The, the data that I use was two guys that just said, here's, a, here's what everybody is looking at it as just a cage fight. Let's break a cage fight down into everything that could occur. Every strike by type, by power, did it land, did it not? Uh, every takedown attempt, every submission attempt, every guard pass, you know, passing guard and getting mount, you know, grappling techniques, and how much time is spent in each one of these positions. They broke it all down, and they just had a lot of data. And lo and behold, you can learn a whole lot once you have the data. Yeah, kind of a, a sidebar to this. I mean, you know, uh, something not quite the same looking at actual uncontrolled, you know, real world violence. People like uh, Steven Pinker fairly recently put out a book called The Better, Better Angels of Our Nature, where he did some of the same things you do with just historical violence over time to look at trends that I thought was fascinating. Do you do any kind of work like that or is that within your ballywick? I wish I had the time to, to look at um, more meaningful things like that. I'm familiar with Stephen Finger's work, and I, I think I read one of his earlier books. Uh, and I think the one you mentioned might be on my wish list. I, yeah, I, I recommend it. I think you'd find it fascinating consider what you, considering what you do. Um, well, all right. That's right. Uh, I've eaten up pretty much uh, an hour of your valuable time here, so uh, let's go ahead and close this up. I do have one more question that, again, is sort of a traditional question that we ask around here from people. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any uh, feet of clay stories? Uh, we love that here at High Eye. You know, have you ever found yourself in a situation where all the probabilities pointed one way and then the dreaded outlier came in from the sidelines and uh, swept your leg, Johnny? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think in, I've made enough predictions <clears throat> that I'm wrong plenty uh, of the time and I hate being wrong, uh, which is another reason why I don't really like going on the record and making betting predictions, <laughs> right. um, which lately, you know, that's what ESPN wants me to do. Sure. And I say, well, there's actually a lot of other angles to discuss here in the matchup. There's some interesting <laughs> stylistic contrasts. There's some interesting stats like, no, 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 we just, you know, make your bet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so of course, of course, I'm wrong a lot. And actually, in the in the hardcore modeling and gambling world, that's called variance. Um, basically, I'm I'm thinking that a guy has an 80% probability of victory, 
according to the betting lines, um, the market believes it's two thirds. And so I'm comfortable in saying, yeah, I'm going to take the favorite because I think there's even a better chance he's going to win than the market believes. And then the underdog comes through. Right. Now, in MMA, the first punch might break your hand. Right. Uh, the first kick might tear your hamstring. And those things have happened. In fact, in fact, I believe those two injuries have even occurred to the same person in two different fights. Um, <laughs> a guy named Travis Brown, he basically, I thought he was going to win by knockout. He broke his hand on the first punch. He nearly knocked the guy out. And then he had to fight five rounds with a broken hand, and he couldn't finish the guy, and he, and he lost. Uh, in a different fight, he threw a kick very early on, and all of a sudden he's limping. And you're like, what's going on with this guy? Well, he tore his hammy on the first kick, and now he's a wounded soldier, and you can't be severely wounded in an MMA fight for very long, uh, at least at that level. Right. Uh, so yeah, I've been wrong a few times, but that's because <clears throat> things happen. There is the puncher's chance. There is the wrestler's chance. You know, a, a long shot underdog might just be a better wrestler and he might just stall you for three rounds or you're the better fighter and you just get clipped. You know, it only takes one shot. And so that's what it makes MMA intriguing. They say any given Sunday, exactly. anyone can win. Um, it's, it's variance, you know, there's still as good as we are at believing we know who's going to win. There is still variance. And so that's why it remains a probabilistic outcome. And that's why there's, that's why you go out and compete. And that's what keeps it exciting for all of us, uh, who aren't competing to, to watch and, uh, keep up with. Exactly. Well, Reed, this has been fascinating. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners uh, where to go to get more of this kind of goodness that you deliver? Well, first, thanks for having me. I mean, I could talk about this all day, so I enjoyed it. Uh, and if you're interested in mixed martial arts or at least combat sports and statistics combined, check out fightnomics.com. Uh, I have a book out. It's been out <clears throat> almost a year now, actually. Uh, but I analyze historical MMA data, and I look at some of the advantages we talked about, as well as establishing a lot of the benchmarks for performance, uh, and maybe even teasing where the sport will go. You know, one day there will be sensors in the gloves, and we're going to have an entirely new experience when it comes to watching a combat sport, because we're going to know how hard each punch was. Um, it's interesting. I, I included that in my book, and sure enough, someone reached out and said, "Hey, we've invented what you talked about." <laughs> uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, so if, if you like that kind of stuff, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and the book is out there. It's available on Amazon. If you're international outside the United States, it might be cheaper to buy it off eBay. My publisher will put one in the mail for you. Um, separately, Amazon probably won't, but just look for Fightnomics. It's out there. Awesome. And uh, we'll link to all that and more in the show notes for you, listeners. Um, and thanks again, Reed. It's been really great talking to you again. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since... Tam uh, didn't get to go this year, having a, a little one keeping me busy. Same story uh, here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of these days I'll get back there, uh, maybe when she's old enough to go. So that'll be fun. Awesome. We'll bring the kids and let them run loose in the casino. <laughs> there you go. They won't, she, she'll learn at an early age not to play games of chance, but maybe she'll put some money on a cage fight for me. <laughs> All right. Awesome, dude. Thank you. Take it easy.
Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brink. Defeating the Man of Straw. Today is another installment in my series on verbal self-defense and fallacies of logic. Today we take on the straw man argument. This fallacy is called straw man because a straw man would be easier to knock down than a real opponent, something to which any martial artists can relate. In the straw man argument, the opponent restates your argument in a distorted way, often accompanied by a sneer, and then goes on to attack his weaker version of your argument, somehow believing that this refutes your original claim. This type of argument works best when the audience is ignorant of the original argument. Let's look at some examples. One might start with an argument that asserts, Muay Thai is a good martial art. A person who used a straw man argument might respond with something like, If you spend all your time practicing Muay Thai, you'll be vulnerable when you're fighting on the ground. The first arguer never claimed you should spend all your time practicing Muay Thai. Another example would begin with the assertion, the guard is a very useful grappling position to master. A possible straw man argument against this could go something like, I would never put my back on the ground in a fight. This straw man argument implies that the first person who spoke wants to put his opponent in his guard and his back on the ground. This is what makes this particular straw man argument a bit more subtle for the simple reason that there are some grapplers out there who desire to have you in their guard. These grapplers are either those whose skills in the guard are at a very high level compared to those of their opponent, or they are misinformed and building their game in a foolish fashion. The truth, as I see it, is that you can't always stop an opponent from putting you on your back, especially if he or she is much bigger than you, and the guard can be a very effective way to survive being on your back to tire your opponent, and finally reverse the position to get on top. While it is possible to force submission from the bottom of the guard, it is only advisable if it is easy. Thus, the first argument was not, I like having the opponent in my guard, but the guard is a useful position to master. When applied to martial arts specifically, there exists a form of the straw man argument that has a significant nonverbal component. In this case, a misguided individual wants to show how easy it is, at least in his or her own mind, to counter a technique or a style, especially one that the arguer wishes to disparage. The arguer then sets up conditions in which the technique being countered is done badly and without elements of its context, be it timing or physical attributes or setup techniques. I know of an example of this where a skilled but misguided grappler was talking to a non-martial artist who was interested in studying the Filipino martial arts. The grappler wanted to lure him away from the FMA class to his grappling class. His argument against the efficacy of the Filipino martial arts was to arm this clueless and somewhat frightened person with a padded stick, drag him onto the mat with him, and then challenge the poor fellow to prevent him from closing into grappling distance where the stick was much less dangerous as if simply using a stick, with or without skill, is anything like a valid representation of the Filipino martial arts. Needless to say, this poor timid gentleman failed to stop the grappler from closing in. He had unwittingly become a physical manifestation of the straw man. So, when you find yourself debating about the martial arts, or any other topic, don't fall prey to this fallacy of logic. 
Don't allow the other guy to frame your argument for you. And absolutely, don't use this tactic yourself. While we're on the subject of dealing with logical fallacies, be sure to guard carefully against becoming a skeptical jackass by crowing loudly to your opponent that his logic is in error and acting as if you have scored points on him. This usually accomplishes very little and serves to further alienate your opponent. Remember that the best reason to debate is not to win, but to get closer to the truth. If it turns out that your opponent's argument is closer to the truth than yours, you still win, if only your ego will allow you to admit it. Any good scientist will tell you that changing your mind in the face of strong evidence and logic is the only way science can work. If you see that your opponent is using a straw man argument, simply and calmly point out to him or her the difference between your actual statement and his or her restatement of it. Stay calm and seek the truth. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think at my website, rpmartialarts.com. This has been Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. certainly did. It was great to talk to Reed again. Uh, hadn't spoken with him in person. Well, you know, technologically in person in a year and a half. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. And we're going to keep up here at High Yaw with what he does as he continues on down the road. Um, more information about him, of course, is in the show notes. Uh, special thanks this time to, uh, to Jeff Westfall. You've been cranking, thankfully cranking out uh, output for us in the form of the Marshall Brain segment uh, for, God, going on two years now, I think. And uh, I just want to tell you from myself and Craig and everybody here at the High Eye Empire uh, how much we appreciate you doing that. Despite every time your name comes up in his presence, Craig goes, hi. <laughs> Shout out to Craig. Oh, he'll be back around soon. Don't you, don't you worry about him. Uh, but really, Jeff... Thanks a million, and keep them coming, because we're going to use them. All right. Um, we'll be back in a week. That's right. In one week, you'll get another episode. I know this for a fact, because I already recorded it for you. Um, Bruce came on with me, and we talked to John Simons, who is a mixed martial artist, jiu-jitsu black belt, has his own academy, does Wing Chun. He's a really, really interesting guy, and... Uh, not least on his uh, list of accomplishments is he is the head of security for a major metal band known as Five Finger Death Punch. So we got some good conversation going on with him. 
And that will be your New Year's present. And then we'll get back to life as usual, hopefully. And uh, the podcast train will keep it rolling. All right, in the meantime, I know we've been dry for a while, but please send us your letters. Send us your encouragement. Uh, send us your firstborn child. Uh, no, wait a second. I've got enough of those. Just have a good time and uh, enjoy your holiday. And uh, we'll see you in a week. Bye. See ya.